0: Hello, it's Sam, and this time I am greeting you from busy Washington, D.C. Relatively Prime couldn't have happened if 340 people had not emptied out their wallets to fund the Kickstarter. This time, I would like to personally thank Alex DeVoe, Jen Bokoff, Randy Phillip, Thomas Bull, and Josh Levine, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Murphy and Edmund Harris. Here is where I would normally tell you that if you wanted to support the show, you should go to iTunes and rate and review it and all that, but... Instead, I have an announcement for you. We just put up the Kickstarter for the third season of Relatively Prime. So if you want to support the show, please back it. The new season's going to be a bit different than this one. Instead of eight shows that you have to wait nearly a year to listen to, we're going to take Relatively Prime monthly, with the first episode of the third season airing on March 31st. So if you want to have new episodes of Relatively Prime in your ears every month for the next year, Head over to relprime.com slash kickstarter and back the show this is the final time i'll be telling you about exotex posters if you've heard the previous mentions you will already know that they make amazing looking posters and necklaces by combining millions of tiny letters and numbers like say the complete works of shakespeare or the digits of pi into images that look like shakespeare or the letter pi They are truly beautiful works of art, and you are missing out if you don't go to their site, ExatextPosters.com, and order one for yourself. Once again, that's E-X-A-T-E-X-T-Posters.com. And now, for Relatively Prime, Principia Metropolica. Edenton.
1: Walk sign is on to cross.
0: I love cities. Small cities, dense cities, new cities, twin cities, reborn cities. I don't care what type of city, cities. I love them all. This, of course, made it inevitable that I would at some point become interested in the intersection of cities and mathematics. And once I became interested in that intersection, it became inevitable that I would want to make a podcast featuring stories about it. And now here I am, walking the streets of a city, recording an introduction cause and effect. It really is a marvelous thing. But enough stalling on my part. I have a bunch of wonderful stories to share with you. So, let's get to it. This is Relatively Prime. Cities in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. Before we dive too deep into the mathematics of cities, we really need to get a good grasp on just what a city is. And since I am really good at my job, I found the exact right person to talk to.
1: My name is Michael Batty. I uh, use the the, uh, nickname uh, Mike, usually, Mike Batty. And uh, I'm uh, Bartlett Professor of Planning at uh, University College London. And here I uh, run the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis, which is abbreviated CASA.
0: As I said, we need to get a good grasp on just what a city is. Here's what Mike told me when I asked him that question.
1: Generally speaking, cities are regarded by most people who are studying them from very different perspectives as essentially places that bring people together so they can share their labor in some way.
0: Mike went on to tell me that cities started to merge around 10,000 years ago when some humans started to settle in fixed places and farm. Once they had stopped moving around, they realized that if they pooled their resources and ideas, they could start to create surpluses. And thus, cities were born. Or if you want to put it in the language of today. In the modern day, we've now recognized them as essentially being the motors of the modern economy. When Mike is studying cities, he makes sure to look at cities of all different types. Because as he says, If we want to understand big cities, we first need to understand small ones because all big cities were small at one point. And a big part of studying cities in this holistic manner is studying how those small cities became big. Did they grow organically as needs arose or did they grow according to a
1: plan that someone had made for the city? Generally speaking, most cities evolve organically with some modest and limited amount of planning. This sort of bottom-up organic
0: growth makes sense. Think about how most decisions are made in a city. They're not made by consulting the whole population. And they're not made by a single dictatorial planner who decides exactly what needs to happen everywhere in the city. No, they're usually made by an individual or a group deciding what they need and then acting on it. It's not an organized planned evolution. It's a much more natural one. This would imply a certain chaotic result, but Mike says that's not the case.
1: When cities grow in this way, which is the predominant way, then one might expect uh, city forms to be somewhat chaotic to look at. In fact, they're not. They're highly ordered.
0: And as with so many organically growing things, this ordering happens because of constraints, both in the physical geographic sense and in the resources
1: sense. Can't build roads everywhere. Uh, so we have to uh, build them in places which are most likely to serve the uh, growing population. And, that, and, and a principle which appears to be uh, energy efficient in this sense is to grow these structures as though they're tree-like structures, dendritic structures. Okay,
0: if you think that a city growing like a tree doesn't sound quite right, I just ask that you please stick with me. I'll go through an example and I promise it'll be clearer after that. I want you to think about a rudimentary settlement. It has a few shops and communal buildings in its center, and a collection of cabins further out. The clear way to connect the two would be a straight road. Anything else would take more time, and even more importantly, more resources, because that is our main constraint here. And as this settlement grows into a town, you're inevitably going to have more collections of houses, and those houses will need to be connected to the rest of the town, but We still have resources as a constraint, so not every house can have its own road to it. So you end up with more straight roads. This time, instead of connecting back to the city center, they just connect to that first road. Or in other words, your trunk now has branches. Once you end up with a large modern city, you have a really good metaphor. You have the roots in the ground of the city center, and then your trunk, which is the big road leading out. And then you have the branches of the trunk connecting to the neighborhoods, and those branches sprout houses as leaves. Totally clear now, right? Isn't that awesome? Well, I guess that means time for me to blow it up. Because sometimes this organic tree-like development kind of breaks down.
1: For example... Houseman 's plan for Paris um, basically uh, destroyed a, a, a large amount of what was uh, looked like relatively chaotic medieval sort of uh, street patterns etc the, the development that uh, the Houseman plan replaced really was not necessarily chaotic I mean traditionally it was probably actually well crafted in terms of the way people moved around but it wasn 't really appropriate for Paris in the mid-19th century. So Haussmann actually built these wide boulevards which cut through all this medieval crap and replaced it. And that was classic top-down planning. If you look at Paris now, then that's really one little bit of planning that went on in in the 19th century. If you look at any city, any big city, then you'll find little bits of planning of that kind that go on all the time.
0: And there you go. That's it. That's all that there ever was, all that there is, and all that there ever will be to know about cities. Okay, so that's a lie, but I do need us to take a break from talking about cities here for, oh, 18 seconds, so that I can ask Mike to define fractals instead.
1: The essential definition of a fractal is an object that has a degree of self-similarity within it, meaning that when we look at the object, we see certain patterns in the object which repeat themselves at different spatial scales.
0: And no, I didn't just ask him to define fractals so that I could consider all of this talk about cities mathematical. I do actually have a way to tie all of this together. You can actually
1: see fractal-like structures represented in the way cities actually grow in terms of their physical development. That's right. The physical structure of cities can be thought
0: of as fractal-like. This self-similarity pops up in a bunch of different areas. One is with roads. As I mentioned when I was touring the tree metaphor earlier, you can think of cities as having a trunk which leaves the city center and then branches off into the residential centers. But there's self-similarity there because you can think of the road as it enters the residential center as a trunk itself with branches out to the smaller neighborhoods. And then, if you look at the road into the smaller neighborhood, you can think of that as a trunk with branches out to the individual houses. Another example that Mike found has to do with retail centers. If we start again at the middle, the downtown of a city is a major retail center surrounded by a very large residential structure. Then if you go out into that residential structure, you're going to find a few decent-sized malls, each of which is surrounded by a few neighborhoods. And then if you go into those neighborhoods, you're going to find a few corner stores, each of which are surrounded by a few houses. Going past just this self-similarity, fractals have another really cool aspect. They don't adhere to the normal rules of dimension. Which sounds super abstract, I know, but just as before with the tree metaphor, I have an example for you. Say you start with a finite line in a plane. The line is one dimensional and the plane is two. Now take that line and split it into three segments. And then replace the middle segment with a bottomless equilateral triangle. And what do you have? You have a line with a pointy hill on it. That doesn't sound like much, I know, but then I want you to do it again for each straight line segment on that pointy hilled line, which gives you a line with a pointy hill on it, which has a bunch of pointy hills on it. And then I need you to do it again. And then I need you to do it again. And then again, and 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 again, 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 again. What I just gave you are directions to construct a fractal known as the coat curve. What you end up with is a connected line from one end of the plane to the other. But it takes up a lot more space than that first line did. And it's this taking up of more space which causes the fractal to have a higher dimension. In fact, that line went from a dimension of 1 to a dimension of around 1.26. And there's other fractals which are constructed in very similar ways, which end up completely filling the plane and have dimensions of 2. Now, let's combine everything that we've been talking about. We have cities which we can think of as being fractal-like. And we have fractals which don't adhere to the normal rules of dimension. If we mix all of that together and then put it in an oven to bake at 350 for an hour, hour and a half, what we should pull out is the fractal dimension of cities, which would just be so cool. And guess what? It's actually what we get. Of course, now that we have it, we have to talk about how to compute it. There's a bunch of different ways. One way that Mike told me about was by bounding a city entirely within a circle and then looking at how much of the circle the city actually takes up. If, for example,
1: the only thing that was actually filled in this circular space was a, a, was a road roadway with some houses on, then the fractal dimension would be tending towards one. Whereas if everything were filled, it would be tending towards two. But as with
0: so much of mathematics, it doesn't stay anywhere near that simple.
1: There is no unique single fractal dimension of a city. There might be a fractal dimension of a city as viewed in terms of the extent to which it occupies the two-dimensional space, etc. And we can also compute fractal dimensions of things like the Uh, the arteries, the veins, the tree-like structure that actually connects all these things. So that's really the uh, fractal geometry of the networks, basically, in that sense.
0: Uh, Could you think of of this kind of fractal dimension then as being a way of looking at how efficiently the resources and space are being used in a city?
1: There's some link there to that, although it's not been very well mapped out. Uh, in their early work, uh, Jeff West and uh, uh, James Brown, in their early work on, um, on biological systems, uh, they argued that the this kind of fractal networks that were established in biological systems were optimal in some way, optimal way of passing energy through the system. And in that particular context, there's some loose relationship to ideas about optimality, and some kind of uh, value judgment about, about these things. Um, it's not happened quite so much in terms of cities. It's more at the level of speculation. I've never seen anybody set out to produce a plan for a city which is fractal, particularly. I mean, one or two urban designers might have had a go at doing that, but they tend to be excursions into one's imagination in that sense rather than, realistic propositions, et cetera. I've not seen anybody religiously assume that the very best uh, plan for an urban area would be based on some kind of rigorous application of fractal rules. It often happens that the fractal structure emerges spontaneously anyway, according to certain modular rules, et cetera, that they use. Uh, And people might argue intuitively that this represents some degree of optimality.
0: While I am a huge fan of this idea of a fractally planned city, what I really wonder right now is how Mike ever had the idea in the first place of using fractals to study cities. But because once again, I am really good at my job. This is not the first time that I wondered this. The first time was when I was talking to Mike. So I asked him. It turns out it has a lot to do with a pretty model.
1: We were inf- influenced originally by uh, trying, to, trying to use computer graphics to, uh, and ha- rendering to actually make our rather abstract numerical models a bit more pictorial. You know, obviously many of these models that we have work by predicting numbers. We wanted to turn the numbers really into uh, physical pictures in some sense. And we, we use fractals to do that.
0: There was so much more to my conversation with Mike than just city growth and fractals. The amount of cool work dealing with cities right now is staggering, and the science is still young and growing. Our full conversation will be available on the Relatively Prime website, relprime.com. And if any of this has fascinated you at all, you need to go listen to the full conversation. It is awesome. But before we say goodbye to Mike in this episode, I want to let him tell you what he thinks are the next steps forward.
1: We've talked a bit about fractals and complexity and things of that sort and and evolving cities, but there's lots of other bits and pieces of what you might call a science, uh, which really relate to operational models, transportation, planning, all of this sort of stuff. What's needed, I think, is somebody to stand back and pull a lot of these ideas together and write them down coherently and consistently. There's lots of bits and pieces around.
0: Now that we have a good idea of the big picture when it comes to mathematics in cities, I want to take a left turn and talk about a certain sticky situation a lot of people who live in cities can't avoid. And I guess we better get to it before you turn this off. Oh god. I'm so sorry. That's That writing is terrible. I'm I'm so sorry. If there's one shared truth about living in American cities, it's traffic. And all too often, that truth is very slow and all jammed up. Given this, I figured that someone out there had to be looking at traffic through a mathematical and scientific lens. And
2: I was right. Okay, so my name is Gabor Oros, and I'm an assistant professor in mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan.
0: And one of Gabor's areas of expertise is using mathematical modeling to study the speed and density of traffic, i.e. traffic flow. And in particular, when those flows slow down to form the dreaded traffic jam. So I asked him, why does this happen? Why do traffic jams form? Why are our lives in the morning and in the evening slowed down to a crawl by all these other cars that just need to get off the road? Okay, I'm not bitter, but I asked him this question. And his first answer? While it wasn't super illuminating mathematically, you can't argue that it's incorrect.
2: I would say that the simplest answer is that Um, gem can be easily created if there is an accident on the road and that's kind of trivial you probably don't need that many equations to describe that
0: now if that had been the only answer that he had given me i wouldn't be able to use this interview and that would have been really bad so it's really lucky for me that he's actually spent the last few years studying exactly why jams form when there isn't a bottleneck, when there isn't
2: an accident, or any other clear reason. It is due to two factors. One is that uh, we humans have a fairly large reaction time, so even if you are attentive, that is about half to one second, if we become attentive, it can be much larger. And then the other thing is that we, as human, we can only monitor the traffic in our neighborhood. So we can see a couple of cars, you know, ahead and to the right, but we don't really have a good information about what happens like five, ten vehicles ahead.
0: And if you take these two factors and you toss in some maybe not perfect driving, you get what Gabber refers to as congestion waves.
2: Many of these waves are, in fact, triggered by the drivers themselves. Uh, so someone taps on the brake hard enough, then... Other drivers uh, start to overreact to that, and they kind of break harder and harder and harder. And maybe, you know, 10, 50 vehicles uh, behind the initial guy, uh, there will be a jam forming. And whenever this jam is formed, it typically travels on the road with about 15 to 20 kilometers per hour. And that is pretty uniform all around the world from the U.S. to Japan and Europe
0: what what i'm hearing from this is that the person who ends up probably causing the, these kind of phantom jam the ones where there's not a clear accident or, or something they don't
2: actually have to suffer through what they're causing that's that's kind of true they're probably going to suffer through a jam of another person <laughs> but that's right because they kind of drive away and then uh, you know they're not really going to see the consequence of what what is uh, what they are creating and it turns out the main thing which will determine
0: whether or not I cause a jam with my incomplete information and my slow reactions just so happens to be something I can't control, which is how many other cars are on the road. Uh,
2: It also depends on how dense traffic is in the first place. If it's very sparse, then the the flow can tolerate really, hard, you know, harsh braking and there's not going to be a trouble with that. If it's extremely dense, then it's almost already jammed. So, you know, very small actions can lead to a jam. And somewhere between 20 to 40 vehicles per kilometer it's where this interesting thing happens. And in that case, um, the denser the traffic is, the smaller the, the actions has to be to trigger a jam.
0: The question this brings up to me is how does Gabber know this? How can he know which density is susceptible to a jam? It's not like he could just put cars out on a track and test it, right? No one would do that. Would they? Would, would someone
2: do that? A couple of years ago, uh, there were some Japanese researchers and they tried to create a mini traffic jam. Essentially, they took, I think, 22 vehicles and they put them on a closed ring and they just asked people to drive around with some, well, probably low speed. And interestingly, the jam started to form. It was dense enough, and indeed, the irregularities at some point was amplified by the drivers, and they they created the jam traveling along. Okay, I uh, I guess I'm wrong. Someone would do that, but it's not the method that Gabor uses. We try to do it with mathematical equations, and we also have a set of ground robots where we try to reproduce this. So they are about. Uh, one to eight scale in terms of their their size. So that means that if you have a long enough corridor, then we can fit enough uh, robots in the corridor. And we try to basically just crank up their delays, which we can do artificially. This kind of mimicking the reaction time. And and that's how we try to do the jams, basically.
0: Yep. Mm -hmm. It's official. I made a mistake somewhere in my life. First, I find out that some researchers just get to force people to simulate traffic jams on a track, and then I find out that Gabor gets to use robots in the hallways of the University of Michigan to test his work. My pen and paper are starting to seem super, super boring, but I think he mentioned mathematical models in there somewhere. I was mostly hearing robots, robots, mistake in life, robots, but... I'm pretty sure he mentioned mathematical models. It turns out that there's two basic types. The macroscopic.
2: In macroscopic models, we basically look at a stretch of a road and we try to describe at a certain location what is the average speed and the average density rather than focusing on individual vehicles.
0: And the second type of model has the rather unsurprising and, if you ask me, rather uninspired name of microscopic. These microscopic models are a lot newer and they focus on individual vehicles. They're only really possible now thanks to troves of new traffic data which only recently became available.
2: A kind of microscopic model is what we call a car following model. And what happens in this case is again, we, we model the driver with a couple of parameters and we only modeling how it follows the car in front. So basically how do you adjust your gas and braking based on the distance, the change of the distance, as well as your own velocity. And those are the key key uh, quantities we, we put into that. And then um, at the end, of course, when we have it for one driver, we can replicate it as many times as we want. And at the end, it becomes just a large system of, consisting of these little models. And now we're looking at how the large system performs instead of just focusing on the individual driver.
0: I know what you're thinking. There's no way that it could be that simple. How could you possibly simulate the chaotic and dynamic world of traffic using only two-parameter driving models? Well, I have two things that I need to tell you. And the first one, and I'm sorry before I say this, but you are way too full of yourself when it comes to how complex of a driver you think you are. And two, and this one is better news, don't worry. Gabber has some special tricks up his modeling sleeve
2: we can actually start to make them heterogeneous, meaning that the parameters are different. So your reaction time is different than mine, and it's different from the, the drivers around. And we can also make it change in time. So essentially, uh, for example, our reaction time is not really constant. You know, it's changing in time in some very unpredictable manner. And we also try to build that into the, into the models. And once you put all of this together, well... It works pretty well. So we kind of drive pretty close to a car-flowing model, and we can actually reproduce with the models the behavior the humans produce on the road. So we've come a long way.
0: We have our models now, and thanks to them, we know how the jams are formed. But there's still one basic question floating out there. Can we do anything about them?
2: The view for this was pretty macroscopic for a long time. The highway agencies and the and the uh, transportation agencies, they are trying to maintain the smooth flow bar, again, not letting enough cars on the highway, and also sometimes try to reduce the speed of the cars on the highway. In the UK, they, they use it a lot. But what we think is that the, the new revolution is probably going to be about making the vehicles smarter.
0: By smarter? He doesn't necessarily mean self-driving cars, at least not for the next 10-20 to years. During that time period, Gaber foresees a whole range of different types of smart cars, from simple data collectors to those wholly autonomous vehicles. But at the very least, he thinks that all cars will be communicating locally. And there will probably be some sort of a centralized hub, which will be able to aggregate all of this data that gets collected and send back advice for the best ways to keep traffic flowing. Of course, how that advice is implemented, either by a driver like you or me taking it under advisement or by a robot following it to the letter, that, that will depend a huge amount on the type of car that you have and by the type of work which is being done by people like Gabber.
2: So what we are trying to work now is trying to figure out how to integrate these new technologies into the flow um, so that we are not compromising safety. And in the meantime, we try to improve the mobility, i.e. we try to reduce the generation of of traffic jams.
0: These new technologies, they're still many years away from being implemented. But don't worry, I asked Gabra for some more practical advice so you and I can help stop causing traffic jams
2: today. You know, the general advice is not making abrupt uh, changes. Uh, so you should not use your brake and accelerator uh, pedal too harshly, as well as like sudden lane changes can be not good for the flow, if you wish. In, in general, attentive driving kind of helps in this. However, we believe that the amount of irregularities we as humans have you know, we typically slip up and we not be able to pay attention all the time and um, so just by educating drivers we do not think that the problem can be overcome.
0: Well, that's depressing. But don't let it be an excuse for you to drive poorly out there. Really, keep plenty of space between you and other vehicles. Don't do anything which could possibly cause your reaction time to be even slower and Be attentive, dammit. Okay, okay, I'm getting down off this soapbox, but seriously, be safe out there. I know it might sound like heresy, but I'm okay getting stuck in a traffic jam because you hit your brakes too hard. Especially if it means that I got to avoid the one which was caused by your accident. But before we move on to the next story, one where I promise not to mention you getting in an accident, I want to remind you, Of one last thing.
2: And we also have a set of ground robots where we try to reproduce this. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I definitely
0: made a mistake somewhere. Sorry for popping into the middle of the show, but I wanted to say again that we just started the Kickstarter for the third season of Relatively Prime. And not only are we taking Rel Prime monthly for the whole next year, but I'm going to be working with new collaborators like Anna and Annie from the other half to bring more diverse voices and stories to the show. You can back the Kickstarter by going to relprime.com/kickstarter right now. Not all of the mathematics of cities is models and simulations. And to prove that, our next interview is with a person who physically goes out into the city, just like I am right now, except instead of wandering around outside of a state capitol with a recorder, they go out and help bring the mathematics inherent in the fabric of cities to life.
3: Uh, let me just think, what am I? <laughs> One of those things my position changes so often. Hello, I'm Thomas Woolley. I am a junior research fellow at St. John's College and
0: fellow of modern mathematics at the London Science Museum. Could you actually tell me a little bit about what Maths in the City is? Well, it's a very uh, simple project, started by Marcus de
3: Sotoy, And he would go around to schools and give mathematics demonstrations and workshops. And he was often approached by teachers uh, saying, well, we can take you know, kids out to a field and say that's history. We can take the kids out to the same field and say it's geography. But we can't really take them out to a field and say it's mathematics. Are there any mathematical walking tours? That, you know, we can get, get kids out of the classroom and really see what the mathematics is doing. This made Marx's cogs in his head whir a little bit. And so he got his mathematicians together. And we
0: put together some sites here in Oxford and London and we take people uh, around the walking tour. When when you're when you're looking at kind of things in the city, how do you how do you determine what is a mathematical thing in a city? How how do you des- how do you describe what sort of mathematics is? I mean, is it just like architectural things, or, or are there other other things that are involved? When we first started doing the project, we were I think thinking in the wrong direction
3: because some of the ideas we were coming up with, you know, is What's the size of this building? How? What's the volume of the building and things like that? And those questions are okay, but they're a bit dry. They aren't. They don't. I don't. I don't think you could take a, a load of people around the city and ask them how big a building is because they're <laughs> just numbers and no one really relates to them. So what we wanted to do was get good stories of where the maths is really a fundamental part of what you see. So to give you an example, as as you mentioned, there are structural and architectural means where the mathematics is a key component of that building, and that's what we try to really draw out. There are some more general examples that you you could do anywhere, not just in Oxford. So we we often talk about the communication networks that cross Oxford and how uh, GPS works. But things that are specific to Oxford are, there's a particular one in, in my college, St. John's. They have a hexagonal building, and it's called the Beehive. So we talk very much about, well, why do bees create hexagonal structures? What is the point of a hexagonal structure? And well, why don't humans build hexagonal structures more often?
0: Uh, could you give us a, a little bit of a taste of, of what you would what you would say when you were bringing a tour around the beehive? Then, mm. I say, well, the, the first
3: thing you always start off with is you, you get your audience looking for themselves, and you ask them, okay, what do you see that's unusual, or well, what really strikes you about a building? Because that you know that's the first thing you have to build on. People want to be able to. Get the facts for themselves if they can. We we really try and uh, and help people do it for themselves. So that, yeah, we 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 stand outside the beehive. We get talking about hexagons and why bees do it and why humans don't necessarily. And then we try and produce uh, an experiment which which amplifies this feature from the from the structure. So we in that case we we just use a simple piece of string. That's all we use. We have a really long piece of string tied at both ends. So you you essentially form a circle, and then we get people holding it. So we start off with two people, uh, so two points, and essentially you produce a line. The line has no area. But as soon as you get that third person to put a finger in, uh, they make a triangle, and they immediately see that area expand. So then I ask them to maximize the area if they can, because normally they'll have a, a very long, thin triangle. And hopefully by moving around the triangle, they can find the solution, which is the uh, equilateral triangle, which has the maximum area inside. And so we just continuously build it up. We, we go to the square uh, and then the pentagon. And, and so through that, you, you talk about, well, OK, are triangles good to build with? our squares good to build with? Because we often do. Why don't we build with pentagons? And then finally, you get to the hexagon and you talk about the, the optimal packing idea through that. And then you you try and extend their idea. So if we keep adding points to this, we get, you know, the the heptagon, the octagon, and nonagon, and so on. What will we end up with? The circle. And they often don't pack very well because you have bits missing. And that references an earlier site we will have seen, which is the Sackler Library in Oxford, which is actually a cylinder. And so you bring
0: those ideas. You're always constantly building on what they've seen and what they know. To move them further. Do you have uh, any other examples from the uh, Oxford or the uh, London tours of really good stories that are like personal favorites for you when you are bringing the tour groups around? There's two really ones that I like, one from the Oxford, one from the London. The Oxford
3: one is the Sheldonian Theatre, and it's the story of how they constructed the theatre. So when Christopher Wren was asked to be the architect. And Christopher Wren, actually, he's the guy behind both these stories. So he was uh, the guy, the architect behind St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the other site in London. But he was also in Oxford. And when he was in Oxford, you didn't just do maths or geography. You did a whole load of things. And so one thing he did study was math. And he's often said that Christopher Wren built incredible buildings because he understood the science behind the structures he was making. So he could push these things further. But the, the Sheldonian theatre was really quite impressive, because he was asked to build a theatre that was bigger than any theatre at the time, and they didn't want to have columns supporting the roofs. You can imagine that, you know, to you, you put a roof on this thing, you want to be able to put uh, planks across, but if there's nothing holding the planks up in the middle, no, no pillars, how do you do that? And so he asked a professor of geometry here at the time, uh, how, how do I go about this? And the, the answer they came up with was it really ingenious, and it's very much like have you ever folded a cardboard box where you have one flap lying on the others? Yeah, I have. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so you, so it's all interlocked where one is resting on one, but is rest and, and it's one is resting on it. So they're all interlocked, and it keeps that cardboard lid shut. That's exactly what they did with the wood. They put it in such a grid-like fashion, such that each each piece of wood would be supported by one and support one other. And so you had this incredibly strong roof that you could expand to any size, theoretically. And they did calculate how strong it was. I think it could hold up something like two elephants. And they used to store books up there from the Bodleian Library. Oh, oh, and the London uh, site. So as I say, St. Paul's Cathedral. Again, the Christopher Wren Building. The dome there, that's one of the main big draws to St. Paul's Cathedral, is the dome that you can see across London. What people don't know is that that dome, that single dome that they see, is made up of three domes. The outside dome is a hemisphere. And that hemisphere was used to demonstrate the purity of the universe and holiness and godliness and, and all those ideas. You know, it's a very nice, perfect shape. The one that you see inside is actually is not a hemisphere, but it, it's more in keeping with the ratios of the building. They thought the outside hemisphere was too big. So the one inside is, is, is much more in keeping with the ratios. But it's the one in the middle that's the most interesting. On top of St. Paul's Cathedral is a lantern. And the problem with hemispheres is that they're very weak. So if they put the lantern on just that hemisphere, it would crack and break and and wouldn't be standing nowadays. But what Christopher did was he built this catenary curve, which he approximated
0: with a cubic, and they found that that could hold the lantern. Uh, what what sort of reactions do you get from from the tour groups as as you bring them around and you you show them these these mathematical ideas that are embedded in the city around them? Well, I mean astonishment is one, but I mean I think what people really like getting out of
3: it because I, I am one uh, people who do the tour, but there's there's many others in Oxford, and we we all tell different stories in between the sites. So the sites themselves will will head to the Sheldonian, will head to the Beehive, and those will be set. We may you know uh, demonstrating in different ways but you'll get the same information between them we're pretty free just to talk about whatever we like and often i talk about you know other mathematical walking tours you know from the leonard eulers walking tour of the bridges of konigsberg and things like that or perhaps use the analog of the human body being a network and how you can then draw out analogs of communication networks and waterworks but you have other people who just give you the color of oxford from their experiences and people just really like that interaction with mathematicians because they don't normally get that we we have maybe a justifiable reputation of being a bit closed off and a bit insular but uh, there's quite a few mathematicians out there i think that would really like to to show and engage people in the mathematics that they're learning and demonstrate that it's not just all in the book you know you can see these things around
0: you and it gives you a, just a new way, a fresh
3: way of looking at the city that you live in.
0: Oh, Very good. Uh, Thomas, thank you for uh, joining me to talk about maths in the city today. Thank you very much. I am aware that so far, we've only been getting the mathematical and scientific perspective on cities, and as cool as I think the things we've been talking about are, Mathematicians and scientists aren't exactly the point people when it comes to city planning. That's why I was excited when I got a chance to speak on the phone with Lisa Schweitzer, an associate professor of urban planning at the Sol Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. In fact, I was so excited that I barely waited until after we had exchanged hellos to get right to the heart of the matter. Do you see there being an intersection of between the areas of like mathematics and statistics and urban planning?
4: I absolutely do yes. Um, this is a question that has become contested and debated over the years. Uh, urban planning it had a a strong statistical base, particularly as the profession matured. It sort of started out as a reform movement and then, as it moved into the academy, there was a strong social science moment for for the profession and then there was some backlash right, with postmodernism, with people just saying, you know what, I don't think it's possible to scientifically manage cities. I don't think it's possible to scientifically predict the future. Um, And those are all really important critiques, right, the profession and I think the academy and planning theory and all all of these things I think learned a lot from, from that moment. But I think it's, we are entering into a nice phase where we're sort of figuring out what is baby and what is bathwater. About uh, using statistics and data in our day-to-day lives, and trying to think about how we can understand cities and human lives. And, and with the advent of digital technologies and, and big data, we have all sorts of new possibilities for data in cities that, that, that are very exciting to people. I think.
0: So when you're when you're doing your actual work, what are some examples of, of times when you've needed to say use mathematics or, or use statistics?
4: I've been around a while, so my work is a variety of topics, but I've done work on looking at uh, land use and the risk profiles associated with different types of oil refineries. I also use some of the social media to take a look at uh, some text mining methods to see if there are any sort of big trends we might be able to see emerging from patterns in the data about how people talk about important urban topics like public transit. It
0: seems that Depending on like, what area of of urban studies, what area of urban planning you're you're looking at, that the amount that mathematics could help probably varies a lot. Like I was thinking about uh, transportation and 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 transit, in that you know probably queuing theory or network flow analysis, things like that might help. Absolutely. Whereas like social exclusion Absolutely. and civil rights work doesn't seem to have as as direct an intersection. So I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that that spectrum differs and when you go into something. How how you know that, oh, this is a place where I might be able to use the this data analysis and this is a place where it's not going to work as well.
4: I think your characterization of where the traditional tools of, of analyses are the most apparent is, is really quite apt. You know, talking about social justice and social inclusion, that's the center of my work. I came from economics to planning, and for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to be Mathematical when it was appropriate. It is to simply be able to use data to be able to help people see racism or see injustices in the data that they wouldn't normally see because it is such powerful evidence. For me, and I think a lot of people in the field who are fairly mathematical, it's a set of tools. And no one set of tools helps you build a house. And because cities are so complicated, right? Cities and and urban services and urban populations are so complicated. No one set of tools is going to get you there. You got to think about them all.
0: One one group of people that I happen to know have hopped onto this looking at cities are the physicists because they like to they like to invade everything that isn't physics. It just it just seems it seems to be be what they do. do
4: much better than the rest of us because
0: they're physicists Uh, so you have people like jeffrey west or michael batty who are are leveraging fractal geometry and scale-free network models did the way that they are that they are currently studying or or any of the results that that they have done have any impact or have helped at all with any of the work that you have done
4: not for me personally but that doesn't mean it never will be one of the nice things about being relatively mathematically competent for somebody in my field is that I can often kind of stand up against this sort of heavy duty, like science discipline types and sort of say, you know, well, you know, I can hold my own in mathematical discussions. But what I have seen so far, are it's very cool stuff. It's nice. It's a nice application of, of those tools. But a lot of what I think has been represented as urban planning in, in those models isn't really the, the universe of urban planning. A lot of it is urban management. For people who are not outside the field, they don't understand that these are actually distinct things.
0: What What is the distinction?
4: Well, one of the distinctions is simply that, you know, for example, if you use a lot of the structural equations or multiple different data types, uh, the, the models that I've seen have been things that tell you how many people are likely to get sick from a particular disease. That hasn't typically been the purview of urban planning. It's more been the purview of public health. I'm, I'm not particularly territorial. I think it's fine if all sorts of people want to think about these things. Ultimately, one of the things about scholarship is and research is you never know what's going to be useful to whom until it's useful. So just because I haven't seen it yet doesn't mean that it's not common.
0: Yeah, that's that's the entire basis of the existence of pure mathematics.
4: <laughs> that's right. I mean, just, we just don't know yet. And so, you know, we never know until we get there. And then when we get there, we're like, how the heck did we get here? But boy, this is kind of cool. I do get a little bit irritated by the headlines from science reporters who say things like, "Well, urban planning is finally becoming a science," and you're just like, "Oh, you know," and your head hits the hits the test and <laughs> you know, "Oh, I'm sorry, we failed to answer questions that we never asked, and that aren't <laughs> <laughs> and we failed to solve problems that were never really our problems to fix." But okay, and I, I think in some respects, urban planning because it is it's a small discipline. And it's um, a small profession of people. And we're really what we're talking about, people who are, in some respects, devoted to the idea of trying to help foster the good life in cities. Now, I just said something unbelievably normative. And maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but I'm not sure you figure out what the good life is with an algorithm. I mean, I think you can figure out all sorts of cool things with algorithms, don't get me wrong. But the whole idea of the good society, the good city, the good neighborhood, good places, that normative good, that answer has to come from us, right? It's a democratic question. It's a social question. And uh, nothing gets you out of that. All that said, the, the models are cool, and I hope people keep at them.
0: So to change tax a, a little bit here, well, a little bit, to change tax entirely, what mathematics and, and statistics is Taught to people who are studying to become urban planners.
4: So this is a great deal of tussling over this. Some people think that we shouldn't be teaching statistics at all. We should really just be teaching people to deal with groups of people and understand the democratic process, understand how to communicate. Those people are wrong. Those <laughs> I don't I don't agree. I think that it it, it is very important that. Any person as an educated citizen, let alone as a professional, needs to be numerate, right? They need to understand statistics, and they need to understand basic level of math, and it's just too important. What we generally teach is very limited, basic descriptive statistics, and a little bit of simple regression. I do think that for the people who are criticizing that, they do have an important point, and that is... For somebody who's gonna go out and practice, running a simple regression model is not really all that useful. And there are so many instances where a simple-minded regression, if you do construct it, just isn't particularly rigorous or doesn't really help us get any smarter about the puzzles we're trying to figure out. So I am empathetic to that. And you can't teach people everything, but I still think that you have to start them somewhere you have to give them the confidence to continue their education long after you've after they've left your clutches. <laughs> you want them to be able to understand and critique the policy analyses that economists produce. If there is a field that's unbelievably dominant in public policy, it is economics. It's a highly mathematical field. And I just do not think that the rest of us should seed that ground. You know, this is one of the reasons why I don't just you know, throw up my hands and say, oh, well, the physicists are on it. I don't have to worry about any of this anymore. I don't think there's one discipline that's going to have the answer to everything. And so I think it's very, very important that we maintain uh, the expectations for young planners that they start their statistical education when they're in college and that they continue it. And in fairness, I also think that we should ground our students in historiographic methods. You know, lots of people write about events that happen in the city without the benefit of training, the rigorous training that historians go through to figure out, well, did a thing actually happen the way you thought it happened? All of these ideas that we're worried about in cities and, and in every part of life, this is an empirical question. It's about representing concepts. You can represent concepts with words. You can represent it with data. You can create pictures. You can do all sorts of things. And ideally, I want the young people in my profession to be able to represent those concepts as rigorously and as clearly as they possibly can. And I don't know how you do that without a good handle on the language that you use to communicate with, otherwise known as speaking and writing, and a good concept of all sorts of methods for measuring, collecting, and analyzing information.
0: Uh, Well, I... I really don't think we're going to get anything better than that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, We'll talk to you yep. soon.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. For our final story, I found one all about... Huh? You know what? I'm not going to do it. Not for this one. I'm not spoiling this one for you.
5: They said like if you're ever kind of around, like, let me know. And, and the way I kind of viewed it was like, if I could kind of go back in time and tell, like... 10-year-old Sam about this, he would have been ecstatic. And I, and I can remember like, when I was like, sitting in like, the little front area of Maxis, like waiting, uh, I was just like, this is it. Like, my life is complete. I, I, and it was a lot of fun, and it was great to talk to people. And at that point, I think the, the new SimCity version hadn't um, been released yet, so I got to play like, a pre-release version, and it was wonderful. That was a lot of fun.
0: That was Samuel Arbisman. Senior Adjunct Fellow at the Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado, author, and SimCity fan. And when I say SimCity fan, I mean SimCity fan. <laughs> Just listen to how excited he gets when I tell him I'm going to force him to play it. Oh, and and at some point I'm going to warn you, I'm going to pull out my computer, I'm going to make you play SimCity and I'm going to record it. Okay, the
5: original SimCity? Uh,
0: I have SimCity 2000. On okay, there. SimCity
5: 2000 is my sweet
0: spot. That's, yeah, that's what I'm i yeah.
5: <laughs> Okay. Oh, man. This is good. I, there was a point, I, um, I think it was, like, the end of my postdoc, like, the summer, I think it was the summer before the end of my postdoc, and I discovered a way to emulate SimCity 2000 on my computer, and, yeah, I just, like, lost a week. But it was a wonderful (laughs) week. I I regret nothing.
0: As much fun as it would have been, and it would have been so much fun, I didn't convince Samuel to join me in a library study room in Kansas City to just play SimCity. I also wanted to talk to him about an article that he had written for the Atlantic City Lab back in 2012 about the complexity of cities. And, as we always have to do, this is a mathematical story, so let's define our terms. In this case, the type of complexity we're going to be talking about.
5: So Kolmogorov complexity is... It, it's a way of measuring the complexity of something. So in this case, it could be like a string or some sort of computer program. And the idea is that if you have a string, you want to find kind of the smallest way to describe that string. So if you have just a hundred ones in a row, that can be easily compressed into a very small description. In this case, 100 ones in a row, as opposed to actually having to write them all out. But if you have something much more complicated, let's say, I don't know, the first 100 or first 1,000 digits of pi, you need at least A little bit more complicated description, and there are some things that are just totally random. The description of it is the string itself, and so the Kolmogorov complexity is the size of the description necessary to describe whatever you're looking at.
0: Kolmogorov complexity can be notoriously hard to pin down exactly for most things, but thankfully for what we're going to be talking about, we can think of some things' Kolmogorov complexity as the size of the compressed file that it would take to store on a computer. That is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a pretty decent first order approximation and it will get us by in this case. But this still doesn't tell us anything about cities. And I did say that this was going to be about complexity and cities. So I guess that means that we should probably talk about some different ways to measure the complexity of cities,
5: right? You could look at the the road network within a, within a city is kind of like the, the vascular structure of a city, and kind of I guess the more roads and the more interconnections and the more intersections, that would be certainly more complicated, and more complex. Or the more uh, populated a city is, the more complex it is in the sense that more things can arise out of the interactions of the people there.
0: And there are so many other possible measures for a city's complexity the number of patents that a city creates, or how much the population actually interacts with each other, or the city's rate of growth population-wise, or the city's rate of growth geography-wise, or plenty more. And as with so many things, when you have this many ways of measuring something, it probably means that none of them are exactly right. Or, as Samuel says,
5: Again, this is in my uninformed opinion. I don't think there is a single metric For measuring the
0: complexity of a city. Which isn't to say that he's above trying one on and seeing how it fits. Which brings us to his favorite video game.
5: So SimCity is a computer game. Uh, There's been multiple iterations of it. And the idea behind SimCity is you are in charge of building and managing a city. And so you have to kind of zone places for residential and commercial and industrial You have to lay down roads, you have to make sure the traffic is not too bad, you have to make sure you don't run out of money, and you kind of have to just grow an increasingly complicated city in in an organic fashion.
0: One of the most interesting things about the game is that it's open-ended. You don't just fulfill some goals and win, and then game over, you go eat your pizza. No, you have to keep eating your pizza while you continue to build and manage your city. And this is what makes it a very interesting tool for modeling cities. You can try and create the smallest self-sustaining city, or the city with the largest population possible. Or you can figure out ways to rebuild the city after you unleash a monster to destroy it. It can really be a hard game to explain. It's all about
5: creating and managing city of your dreams or your nightmares, whatever you really want it to be.
0: Okay, maybe it's not that hard. But if you're Samuel, your dreams may have been a bit focused on Komogorov complexity recently, and your nightmares may have tried to combine that with your city.
5: I was thinking about, okay, how do we measure in kind of some simple rule of thumb way the complexity of a city? And I realized that there was no real way to say, okay, here's a a simple computer program description for an actual city. And cities have many, many different dimensions and many, many features. And it's incredibly complicated to describe an entire, entire city. It might even be impossible. But you can do that in SimCity. Uh, when you load up your specific city that you saved, it's being loaded up from a single file. And so I thought, well, in my kind of unformed knowledge about how SimCity stores its, its cities, maybe the file size is kind of a nice little metric
0: for the complexity of a city in other words SimCity saved games as kolmogorov complexity measures which is just awesome now of course SimCity cities are not new york or lagos or london or shanghai or caracas and they can't give us the complexity of the cities in our actual world so samuel decided to look at how the file sizes of the saved games grew as a city's populations increased. I found a handful
5: of cities that people had put online. I I think they were from SimCity 3000. And I was able to kind of find the population sizes of these cities, charted them against the file size, and found in this case it was actually linear.
0: I mean, that makes a sort of sense, right? As a city's population increases in SimCity, why shouldn't the file size grow at a similar rate? Well, to understand why this linear relationship is interesting, We're going to have to hop over to biology for a second and talk about Kleiber's law. Back in the 1920s, Max Kleiber was looking at the energy use for animals of different sizes, say mice and elephants. And what he found was that an elephant uses more energy than a mouse. Now, before you go slamming your head into the desk screaming, Of course it does! he also found that per pound, an elephant actually uses less energy. And in general, the larger the animal, the more efficient its energy use. You can think of this as meaning that in the energy equation for animals, instead of mass having an exponent of 1, which would be linear, it actually has an exponent of around 3 quarters, which means that as the mass increases, the energy use actually increases at a lower rate. And this ties directly back into cities. Louis Betancourt, Jeffrey West, and their colleagues at the Santa Fe Institute have shown very similar traits exist in cities, such as this one, which has to do with gas stations.
5: If you double the size of a city, you don't actually need double the number of gas stations. It
0: becomes more efficient. So it seems that cities follow Kleiber's law, too. The bigger they are, the more efficiently they're using energy, or gas stations in this case. But not all of a city's relationships are less than linear. In fact... West and Bentoncourt found that some of the relationships are quite the opposite. The
5: idea would be that when you double the population size of a city, you don't have double the number of patents or double the, the research or double some, some other kind of productive metric. You actually have more than double. And the idea is that it's not just the the, the people, it's Perhaps the interactions between them, and the idea is that maybe there's if you have more interactions between people, then you can have this kind of superlinear explosion.
0: Which brings us back to Samuel's awesome Kolmogorov complexity SimCity test.
5: In this case, it scaled linearly. Bracket that with it scaled linearly. Given I'm using SimCity to understand real cities, which is of course a very
0: big caveat. Hey, stop cutting your awesome test off at the knees. And caveat or no, this result still begged some sort of explanation or at least I demanded that he give me one.
5: My hand wavy explanation of why it was linear is maybe it's some sort of interesting balance between the sublinear phenomena and the superlinear phenomena of cities. I don't really know. I don't really know if uh, SimCity is even a reasonable thing to use at all. Uh, It was certainly a fun kind of thought experiment of saying, okay, let's think about the complexity of cities. And since it is a itself a complex and complicated question, we can at least use SimCity as a kind of a fun little proxy uh, to help place bounds on the kind of way of thinking about cities and mathematics.
0: And having these not only simple, but fun, super, super fun tools is essential for helping to come up with mathematical ideas, be they about cities or about anything else. But it's also important to know that these are not the only tools that we need. The simple models can be very
5: powerful in crystallizing our intuition and helping us think about these very, very messy things. But of course, they're not the end. And and I think that uh, that's always a very important thing to to keep in mind when, when you kind of try to create a simple way of understanding a very complicated and complex
0: system. Basically, we not only need to understand the type of question that we're asking, we also have to understand the type of answer that we're looking for. If you
5: are interested in kind of a very simple first order approximation, a kind of way of understanding at a glance, kind of at least some decent fraction of the behavior of a city, then I think these very, very simple models are great. If you're interested in understanding the details of how a disease might spread through a specific city or some other very, very specific and important question, then I think these, these abstractions are not going to cut it. And so you always have to kind of figure out, okay, what is, what is the question I'm interested in, in answering? And, and therefore, what, what is the best tool to use? Should I use one of these kind of simple tools that cut away uh, and cut through a lot of complication? in the system that I'm looking at, or do I need something itself that is more complicated? And it's not always an easy question.
0: Man, is he right. It is such a tough question. It's one which everyone who works with models grapples with all the time, and there's never going to be a perfect answer for it. But in the end, whether or not Samuel showing us that SimCity file size grows linearly with population growth tells us anything at all about cities and complexity doesn't matter to me not one bit. His work matters to me because the very silliness of it grabbed my attention. It's because my delight in the idea of using SimCity, SimCity to do mathematical research. Once again, SimCity to do mathematical research made me think about cities and complexity for the very first time. It's because I would not, I would not be doing this episode of this podcast if he hadn't written that article. And it taught me something very important. It taught me something, something that I think we forget. No, I know that we forget in mathematics and science all too often. And it's this. Sometimes the most fun option is just the best way to go. It brings people in. It makes people excited and interested in the subject. So... I'm going to put this out there. Next time, just choose the most fun option. You won't regret it. Oh, and don't forget to play some SimCity. It's just as good as you remember it.
5: When you generate, when you randomly generate a cityscape, it has this nonsense phrase, reticulating splines, but it makes you feel like it's doing something exciting. And that phrase has kind of always been um, associated with SimCity 2000. So I'm just supposed to narrate what I'm doing. Yep. Okay. Should I start talking? Yes. Yep. Start, start talking.
0: Part? Start talking at well, any point.
5: So I'm in the year 1900, and I got my little city chartered. Um, I still I want to start something near river. I guess I'll do dense residential. It don't have to be dense right away, but like to give them something to strive for. (laughs) That's a horrible road I just made. That is not a good commute. It involves apparently kind of this nauseating trip. Right now, my entire city consists of a single warehouse. I have succeeded beyond (laughs) my wildest dreams. I'm quickly realizing all of my decisions are horrible. Oh, people are living in my horribly inefficiently placed residential area that is on a hill with a terrible road nearby it.
0: But it has a great view. It
5: has a great view and there is no traffic on that road because no one probably wants to use it. Oh, we have positive cash flow. I'm making a dollar and I'm estimated to make $8 in 1903. This is very exciting. A fire station, a police station, and... Oh, my city awakens. Oh, whoa. So, so what does it say? Let's... Hats off to Mayor simcity 2000 Mayor, who has nurtured Arbisman City from its infancy to a robust population of over 2,000. In case it wasn't clear from my narration, there is absolutely no design theory underlying what I'm doing here. It is just a massive mess. I imagine this is how real cities evolved over time, especially uh, back in the day before there was kind of urban planning. You just build some stuff. Hospitals are demanded. That is a reasonable demand. <laughs> Let's see what I can yeah, do.
0: Yeah, so far, so far, people are just dying.
5: Okay, I think we're building a cute little city that seems self-sustaining. Perhaps it's time to do something horrible to it. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think It, might, it be... might be time for a disaster? Yeah. Let's okay. get a monster. Whoa! Oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. They're destroying things and replacing them with wind turbines? That is a strange... Oh, man. They destroyed my power plant. That's horrible. Is the monster gone? Oh, he's just... Okay, he's going off into... Oh, he blinked at me. Somehow, my... Yeah, my alien gave me wind power. That's an interesting... Theme. I... This has got to be some sort of bug. This is crazy. But hey, I think they haven't actually invented this yet. So I perhaps am... I have an alien visionary giving me alien advanced technology. This is so, ex- yeah, you're right. I can't even purchase it. This is, he came from an advanced civilization or possibly from the future and is giving me uh, wind turbines. That must be why
0: uh, it destroyed your power plant. It won like green energy. Yeah, uh, that's it.
5: It is, it is a. Uh, it's eco-terrorist. Eco-terrorist, yeah, this is. You also
0: build parts. Do so
5: build parts. Possibly. It was the friendliest alien, <gasps> friendliest alien I've ever seen. Go a monster so I can rebuild. And what I can do is I can turn. I can do auto budget, and now we can just crank through the years. Let's see what's going to happen. I think I'm losing. No, I'm gaining money. Gaining money. Okay, it's not a disaster. We're doing well. We're making about two hundred bucks a year.
0: Let's see what the uh, what's your population compared to the other. I'm at
5: sixty one hundred.
0: And I'm taking oh, everyone but Portville.
5: Everyone but Portville. This thing is doing we'll say not terrible. Okay,
0: well let's destroy
5: it. Okay. I'm ready for it. Okay, let's go for some earthquakes. Those things are pretty. Whoa, whoa. And oh my god, there's explosions everywhere. There's a fire tearing through one of my Industrial districts. and yeah, that's that's bad news. Love, oh, it's actually contained. This is not the worst thing. Oh, it's going to ruin the power. See. That's, well,
0: it's going to ruin something else. It's
5: not enough yet. Okay, let's do another earthquake. You, the one
0: you built up on that day was oddly resilient. It was very
5: resilient. That was probably... Okay, let's do an air crash. Oh, yeah. and now it's burning. And the fire burnout. That actually wasn't... That was... Let's, okay, let's do some rioting. Okay, now they hear people rioting. See, they're willing to make the long trek to go to that other area on that big ridiculous road. Now we okay. This is this is what I'm talking about. The rioters running rampant. Now they're now they're doing some damage. Okay. I had not realized that a man-made disaster is uh, or man in, man-induced disaster is going to be much worse. But you know, they're doing the work. Okay, now well, well they're blowing some.
0: While they're all doing this.
6: This is Leith Conaber from New York City, and that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I would like to thank Mike Batty, Gabor Roz, Thomas Woolley, Lisa Schweitzer, and Samuel Arbsman for appearing on the show. If you would like to know more about them, please go to relprime.com and check out the show notes for this episode. I would also like to thank the musicians Chris Zabriskie, Jazz Town, Jim Raman, and Jonathan All for the music that you heard. You can also find links to more music from them on relprime.com relatively prime is a production of acme science and samuel hansen with support from all of his wonderful backers on kickstarter if you would like to help support relatively prime head over to the website and click on the support button trust me samuel would be very happy if you did you can also head over to itunes and leave a rating and a review that is how their algorithm decides rankings and the higher rel prime is ranked the more people will see the show if you have any feedback or just want to say hello to samuel you can send him an email at his personal email account Really, this is his everyday email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Share-like license. So please feel free to remix Samuel's voice to say whatever you like, as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank you for listening, and have a matherific week.
0: You thought we were done, didn't you? Sorry. But I have to tell you one last time that if you want Relatively Prime to keep going after the end of this season, which only has two more episodes to go, you need to go to relprime.com kickstarter and back the third season, a.k.a. the season Relatively Prime goes monthly. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your support.